Genesis chapter 9 today. So we'll be continuing our series on using the law lawfully. Just going to look at two of the Old Testament commands today. First one is going to be in Genesis chapter 9. This one's a little controversial out in the world, but among us, I'm pretty sure all of us are very familiar with it and very much in favor of it. But this is the command for capital punishment for murder. And so we find it first in Genesis chapter 9, verse number 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Okay, so here we have a command that God has given. This is being given to Noah and to his family, saying that whoso sheddeth man's blood, anyone that, that murders a man, uh, he's supposed to be put to death by another man. Now, you have the phrase here, by man shall his blood be shed, and there's a lot of people that look at that and say, that's a, a prophecy, and so this is a prophecy that's not fulfilled because there's lots of murderers who get away with it. Uh, the word shall does not necessarily mean this is definitely what's going to happen. It's a future tense of should. So it's saying this is what should happen in the future. So if, you, if a man kills a man, then in the future he should be put to death by another man. It's not saying he definitely will, but that's what should be done. And so that's what God is telling Noah and his family at this time. Now this is repeated in the uh, law that was given to Moses. We can turn to Exodus chapter 21. <clears throat> Exodus 21 and verse number 12. He that smiteth a man so that he die shall surely be put to death. And it goes on to talk about manslaughter and, and the differences there. But uh, he that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. And then let's go to Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24, verse number 17. Leviticus 24, 17. And he that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. So again, the same command repeated here in Leviticus. And then go to Numbers, chapter 35. Numbers 35, verse number 30. Numbers 35, 30. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death. By the mouth of witnesses, but one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall, he shall be surely put to death. Okay, and then, uh, well, we'll pause just a second on here. This is the only one that talks about not taking satisfaction. What that is saying is that you're not to take a lesser penalty and say that the, the judgment has been satisfied by this lesser penalty. Uh, for many of the other laws, many of the punishments, uh, God allowed for payment of a monetary 
payment instead of suffering the punishment that was listed in the law. And that's all that's spelled out many places in the law. We've looked at it a little bit uh, in the past. It's one of the reasons that uh, whether or not uh, I just forgot the guy's name. Is it Japheth that made the pledge? Whatever comes out to me uh, when I come back to my house, the first thing that comes out that that's what I'll sacrifice to God. And the first thing that came out was his daughter. Uh, there was a provision in the law for uh, redeeming a human that was pledged to be sacrificed unto God. Specifically, it was for redeeming the firstborn male child. Uh, and there was a, a provision in the law for allowing that, that uh, you pay a certain amount of money and, and you don't have to sacrifice the child. Uh, that could have been allowed to the man when he made that promise. But anyway, that would be satisfying his oath or allowing satisfaction uh, for that. So here it's saying, you shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer. I mean, you can't assign a lesser penalty. You can't say if he just pays a fine or if he spends so many years in prison. That was not allowed. It, the murderer had to be put to death. That was the only punishment that God allowed. And then let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy 19, verse number 11. But if any man hate his neighbor and lie in wait for him and rise up against him and smite him mortally that he die and fleeth into one of these cities, then the elders of this city of his city shall send and fetch him thence and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Thine eyes shall not pity him, but thou shalt put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with thee. Okay, and so... Here we have again in Deuteronomy, man commits a murder, even if he flees to the city of refuge, uh, if they find out that it was murder and not manslaughter, he's to be put to death. And so that was the penalty that God commanded. <clears throat> this is one of very, very, very few uh, portions of the law that is found in all five books of the Pentateuch, all five of the books of Moses. And we find this law that... A murderer is to be put to death. So it's it's a very serious, it's a very emphatic uh, command that God gave. It wasn't. There's no ambiguity about it at all. Some of these other commands we we've looked at in the past, and we can look at them and say, well, you know, the Jews view it as saying this way. We don't think it really means that way. Based on this other passage of scripture, we think it it means this instead. And there's a little bit of ambiguity in some of these laws. They're, they're open to a little bit of interpretation. This one is not. I mean, it is emphatic. If a man kills another man as murder, and there's the exception for manslaughter, but if, if he murders another man, he is to be put to death. And that's there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's the command of God that the Jews were to follow. Now, also we can see that this idea of capital punishment for murder is a natural law. It's not just this is something that God commanded. This is the way God set up nature to be. So it's a, a natural law that can be even discovered in nature. We can see that indicated to us in Scripture. Uh, first of all, we right where we are in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse number 13. But thou shalt put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel. So it's not the guilt of innocent blood from this one man, 
but that the whole land of Israel is polluted when a murderer is allowed to continue living. All right, and so kind of gives this idea that there's, this, there's something wrong in the whole nation when this takes place. It's not just this one person that sinned. And then we can get a better view when we go back to Numbers chapter 35 and look at verse 33. So let's go back there. Numbers 35, verse 33 and 34. Numbers 35, starting in verse number 33. So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are, for blood it defileth the land. And the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Defile not therefore the land which ye shall inhabit, wherein I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. So allowing a murderer to go free and not to suffer the death penalty causes pollution of the land itself. Not pollution of the nation or the people, pollution of the very land. That very land becomes defiled. Anywhere you see in Scripture talking about pollution of the land or defilement of the land or the, the land becoming vile, uh, that's all talking about natural law things. Uh, for example, it's used for uh, a reference to homosexuality and bestiality. Uh, those are violations of natural laws that God set up in the way that, that he created all humans to be, the way he created animals to be, it's just the way nature works. And to go against that is a violation of what God intended in nature. To allow a murderer to go free and not be put to death is put in that same kind of category of a violation of a natural law that God established. Okay, and so we can see that, but then also in Deuteronomy 17, we can go back to Deuteronomy In spite of all this, the, the command that the murderer is to be put to death, uh, the command that it's, you're to take no satisfaction for the death of the murderer, the fact that it's completely unambiguous, the fact that it's a, a violation of natural law, God still recognizes that there's a possibility someone might be convicted or accused of murder who wasn't actually a murderer. And so what do you do there? And he made requirements. Deuteronomy 17, verse number 6. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. And so there is a requirement. God had that you had to have two witnesses in order to put someone to death. Now, in Scripture, witnesses don't necessarily mean uh, people. There's other things that are spoken of as witnesses. For example, Jesus told the Pharisees, uh, my words are a witness against you. And so, in the talking about in the day of judgment, you're going to be judged not just by what people around you witness and say, you're also going to be judged by the witness of my words that were spoken to you. Uh, and so you can have uh, material evidence would be something that's considered a witness. Uh, you have in, in uh, the book of Joshua, the stones that they took out of the, the river Jordan, those were to be a witness to them of their past. And so you have physical objects, you can have 
uh, immaterial things that, that are witnesses of an act. But you required two witnesses in order to put someone to death. So there was required to have two, at least two pieces of evidence, direct evidence, showing that this person committed the crime and therefore he was worthy of being put to death. And that was to prevent innocent people from being uh, put to death unjustly. So God recognized, you know, someone might make an accusation, the accusation would be false, and uh, there should be safeguards in the judicial system in order to prevent that. What this also does is it prevents vigilante justice. You can't just say, oh, you killed my brother? Okay, I'm going to kill you right now. Uh, no, it was required that you go to law, go to a court, and that you have witnesses presented before the judges, and then the judges determine whether or not the person was guilty of death. And Numbers 35 talks about that with the cities of refuge and, and how the court system was supposed to work. And we'll get into that uh, when we talk about other laws dealing with uh, the, the trial by jury and things like that. All right, so that's the command for capital punishment. The murderer is to be put to death. And there's no ambiguity about it. That is definitely what God said. All murderers are supposed to be put to death. So how do we apply that in the New Testament? Does this apply just to Jews, or does it apply to us as Gentiles as well? The first thing we see is that the first command regarding putting murderers to death was found in Genesis 9, verse 6. That's a command given to Noah for all mankind. It's not a command given to Moses for the Jews. So the command that murderers are to be put to death is a universal command that applies to all mankind from the time of Noah onward all the way to the end of the world. And so just right off the bat, without even looking at the New Testament, we can see right away this command does apply to us as Gentiles. It's a command we should follow and that our government should implement here in America. And the fact that we've gotten away from it parallels the fact that we've gotten away from God. Okay, so... First thing we see, it is a universal command given for all men. But we can still see some implications about it in the New Testament, specifically Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, talking about the, the rulers and the men in government, we see in verse number three, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. So the ruler is not a terror to good works, he's a terror to evil works. And then verse number four starts with, for he is, a, he is the minister of God to thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now, when we see the phrase there, he beareth not the sword in vain, swords aren't used for anything other than death. They are objects of death. That's what they're used for. And you can use it to chop wood or something if you really want to, but that's not what it's made for. A sword's purpose is to kill. So when you have the statement that he beareth not the sword in vain, what's that, what that's saying is, the government does not have the power to kill in vain. So that power given to the government to kill, God didn't just give him that government as an as give him that power as an empty promise. God gave the government that power for the government to use it. And 
how is the government to use it? To be a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Which, that uh, harkens back to Numbers 35, where we just were talking about the, the murderer. And if we look in verse number 19 of Numbers 35, it says, The revenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. When he meeteth him, he shall slay him. And that's that same thing that Romans 13.4 is talking about. It's talking about the revenger of blood executing God's wrath upon the murderer. And that's what it's, what it's referring back to in Romans 13.4. So here we have in the New Testament approval for the government executing capital punishment on murderers. So we have the, the command here, the Old Testament command, all murderers are to be put to death. That's what every government should do. And then the New Testament, we see it's a universal command, but it's also hinted at in Romans 13, 4, uh, kind of boldly and plainly showing that God approves of governments putting to death murderers. So that's the first one we're going to look at today. Any comments or questions on it? I don't know. I don't know how the Catholic Church reasons out of it. Um, I asked one of my friends who's a Catholic that it, a while back, and I can't remember what he said, but it didn't make much sense to me. I don't remember exactly what he said. Yeah, there's no exception for mental illness. Yep. Yep. Yeah, the, one of the dangers of the uh, America's focus on mental illness when it comes to murders and, and mass shootings and things like that, we're so focused on mental illness, we kind of forget that mental illness is one of the uh, main descriptions that was given to anyone who believed in God in Soviet Russia. They've proclaimed them to be mentally ill, then they could arrest them and take them to, you know, where they would no longer be a danger to society. And if it happened there, it can happen here. So if we allow the government to say, oh, if you're mentally ill, we're going to not allow you to have firearms or, you know, all these different things if you have any mental illness. Well, what happens when they classify belief in God as a mental illness? Uh, that's, that's something I can definitely see coming down the road. Hopefully it never does, but it's certainly a possibility we should be aware of. Seems to me that habitual sin causes mental illness. Yes. Yeah, and you know, most mental illness, most of the stuff that is described as mental illness is not really mental illness. It's it's just a seared conscience. Yeah. That's been running from God and uh, denying God for so long that it the conscience no longer works. All right, so that's the command for capital punishment. Let's look at another one. This one's uh, a much more uh, upbeat and happy <laughs> type of command. So uh, let's go to Exodus chapter 21. We're going to look at the command for uh, one of the commands having to do with the treatment of servants. So Exodus chapter 21. And 
we'll start in verse number two. If thou buy an Hebrew servant six years, he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when it says go out free for nothing, meaning he no longer owes any debt, this is specifically talking about uh, men that have accrued debts and they can't pay them, and so they sell themselves into servitude in order to pay their debts. In the seventh year, after serving six years of, in servitude, it didn't matter how much he owed. After that six years of service, his debt was wiped clean. And so he could then uh, go on and continue his life with a clean slate uh, financially. All right, so we see here, first of all, no Jewish man could be forced to serve more than six years. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. Let's continue reading on down to verse number six. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges, he shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So this is the uh, law concerning a, what's called a bond servant, uh, someone that was bound to the master forever. Uh, so a Jewish servant, at any time, he could choose to be a lifelong servant of a particular master. Now, that's completely foreign to us in America, that the idea of uh, being a servant voluntarily uh, under someone else is it's not something that's prominent in our society. Uh, but we're kind of unique in that area with our emphasis on personal freedom. Uh, that's not the way most societies are today, and it's not the way most societies have been throughout history. So we're, we're in a little bit of a unique situation here in America. Uh, but throughout most of human history, there's been a lot of men who have been voluntarily and saw nothing wrong with being a servant to someone else, to some master, uh, for their entire lives. And so God allowed that, and Israel recognized that possibility and uh, made it a provision to where any Jewish man, if he wanted to serve another man and serve him eternally, you know, forever, he could do that and uh, become his bond servant. If a man, uh, one thing we've seen here, if he talks about talking about the wife, and there's a little bit of confusion out there about uh, the passage, if his master have given him a wife, she's born him son and daughters, uh, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. A lot of people think, well, that's God saying that, that this home should be ripped apart, and this man is is no longer married to this wife and her children. The master can give her to someone else. and you know Now this man's out on his own and, and has no uh, possibility of reuniting with his wife. Well, they're forgetting verse number two. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Well, the same thing applied to female servants as it did to, to male servants. So that wife is only going to be continuing the service to the master until her six years are up. 
And so if the man was not married when he came in, and while in the service of his master, he married a woman that was also in the service of the master. And so let's say this man, his term comes up and the wife still has three years of service left. The man can go out, he's free, he can leave if he wants. She still has to fulfill her three years of service. And so it doesn't mean that they're no longer married, they're no longer husband and wife, and the family's torn apart. It just means she has to fulfill the rest of her term of service until her six years are over, or whatever the maximum amount it was. And then now she's free to go out and, and go wherever. So in a case like that, I would imagine the male servant that is now free would just live close by, and their house would be close by the master that the uh, wife serves, so that she can continue to serve the master even though her husband is free and they now live in a house right there next to the master's property. That would be my imagining of how it would <clears throat> how it would go. But there's no statement in here about the family being torn apart and the, the man being forced away from his wife unless he became a bond servant to his master. Alright, so that's, that's the command we see here. Uh, at the end of six years of service, uh, the servant had the opportunity to choose to continue in the service of his master. There's a parallel passage to this over in Deuteronomy 15. Let's turn there and we see uh, a little more detail about this end of a service period. Deuteronomy 15 and verse number 13. Deuteronomy 15 verse 13. When thou sendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock and out of thy floor. That's the, the threshing floors. That's the wheat and corn. And out of thy winepress, of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. Okay, and so at the end of the six years of service, if the servant decided to, to go out and, and be free, then the master was to give him very generous gifts of gratitude for the six years of service that he had performed. And the master has promised in verse number 18 that these gifts would be easy to make because of the value of the servant. Uh, verse 18, It shall not seem hard unto thee when thou sendest him away from thee, for he hath been worth a double hired servant to thee in serving thee six years, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee and all that thou doest. And so, here we have a, a little bit of a glimpse into the way this servant-master relationship worked. Uh, when you're talking about a Hebrew servant and a Hebrew master, the relationship between them was to be very generous on both parts. The servant is assumed in here that the servant is going to be grateful to his master because he's a good master and, and doing the right things. So the servant's going to work hard and going to be worth more than someone that's only working for pay, just some... A stranger that you've hired and, and hired to do a job. But instead you have this Hebrew servant who has love for his master, is going to do a great job, and so it will be easy for the master in return to give many gifts to the servant and when the servant leaves. And so that was the, the way this all worked according to the Old Testament law. The Jewish man could be forced into servitude because of debts or uh, things like that. He could only be forced to serve six years, and in the seventh year, he's allowed to go free. His slate is wiped clean. 
at the end of that six years, he could choose to be a lifelong servant of his particular master. Uh, and then at the end of the six years, if he decided to go out free, he was to be given very generous gifts in appreciation for his six years of service. Okay, so that's the Old Testament command. Let's look at a New Testament application. First thing we see about the New Testament application here is that there's no direct application to Gentile believers. This is just a command that God gave to the Jews specifically, and he didn't apply it to anyone else. However, it does provide a good example of the kind of care and camaraderie that we should have toward each other as Christians. And if we think about it in American terms versus some other culture that may still have masters and servants, but if we think about it in American terms, Christian employers should benefit from having Christian employees. And in return, Christian employees should benefit from having Christian employers. It should be a very good relationship both directions to have Christian employers and Christian employees. Many times that's not the case. Many times uh, there's animosity between the employers and the employees that is intensified by both of them being Christians because the employee thinks, well, I'm a Christian and he's a Christian. He should treat me better than he does. And the employer thinks, well, I'm a Christian and he's a Christian. He should work harder than he does. And they're focused on what the other person should be doing rather than focusing on what they should be doing. And it creates a lot of tension. <clears throat> this is referenced a little bit in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So let's turn there, 1 Timothy chapter number 6. <clears throat> and verse number 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. So here we have a, a reference to that potential animosity between a Christian employee and a Christian employer, and that that uh, despising that uh, the employee might have toward the master, and, and it, it goes both ways. <clears throat> and it's commanded here that we're not to be that way, we're to rather, uh, the employees are to do them service willingly uh, because of the fact that they're Christians, that they're faithful and beloved, that they're partakers of the, of the benefit of, of being Christians. As employees, we're to have a good relationship and be willing to work hard for our employers. <clears throat> and other places talk about masters treating their servants correctly because they have a master also in heaven. And so they're to treat their uh, servants or their employees the way that they would want to be treated themselves. And so uh, we can see this Old Testament principle about good treatment for the Jewish servants and them uh, being allowed to go free at the end of six years. They that we have the principle of them being able to choose to be a servant forever and showing their gratitude that way, and the, the master showing his gratitude by giving them gifts at the end of their term of service, and is to be a, a very uh, pleasant relationship between the master and the servant. And we see in the New Testament we're to have that same 
relationship as Christians between employers and employees. Okay, so that's the next command. Any comments or questions on that one? <coughs> Right, the year of Jubilee, the everyone's set free. Uh, right, it may only serve one year if it was just before the year of Jubilee. Uh, all debts were forgiven. Everyone's set free from their servitude at the year of Jubilee. I happen to look down to Exodus 21.7. What does that mean? Let me turn there. Exodus 21, verse number 7. Ah, but we're going to look at that next week. Oh, okay. So we'll get to that. Anything else? All right, well, let's go ahead and be dismissed in prayer. Russell, why don't you close us in prayer? <coughs>